0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hello. Hello. What a lovely, cool, and rainy morning. How is everyone today? Good. Very nice. All right. So a reminder, Iowa Summer Writing Festival that our all-festival dinner is tonight. Um, So we'll be on the lower level of the Graduate Hotel. Uh, Doors open at 6 p.m. If you want to come a little earlier, we'll be there a little earlier. There's not too much to do, but you can if you want to. Doors open at 6. Uh, Let's see, dinner is served around 6.15, cash bar, dancing if you, uh, words, closing remarks, dancing if you are so inclined. So I will see all of you tonight, which will be super fun. And in the meantime, Thank you for joining us for today's 11th hour presentation. Mika Irkin's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other esteemed publications. It has been widely anthologized and twice nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her book, All Ships Follow Me, is forthcoming from Picador. Please help me welcome Mika, who will share her thoughts on the feminine versus the masculine narrative voice.
1: Thank you, Margaret, and welcome, everybody. Um, So I know you guys heard about taboos in writing yesterday, so I'm hoping this (laughs) talk dovetails nicely with that. Um, And we'll just wade right in. Let me get this so I can easily. Okay. So in 2010, a nonprofit advocacy organization for women in the literary arts, Vita, started compiling data on the publishing statistics of the top tier literary journals and periodicals in the United States with regard to gender representation. Volunteers for the now annual Vita count meticulously break down 39 literary journals and well-respected periodicals tallying, tallying genre, book reviewers, book reviewed, and journalistic bylines to offer an accurate assessment of the publishing world. The results in 2010, as with the counts to date, painted a pretty discouraging picture for women writers, who represent the majority of English and creative writing MFA graduates according to the Department of Education statistics, and therefore should at least have an equal representation in what we read in our magazines. As Vita put it, men dominate the pages of venues that are known to further one's career. In 2011, fresh off these dismal statistics, a senior editor of a large national magazine that reflected particularly poor gender balance in the 2010 and 2011 Vita counts visited the nonfiction MFA writing program here at the University of Iowa, where I was getting my degree at the time. The magazine this writer and editor worked for had 27 male book reviewers on staff versus six female book reviewers, with similar disparity in the genders of the authors that it reviewed. Of its feature articles published in 2011, 65 authors were male and 13 female. The Vita count was fairly new at the time, so naturally, as our small MFA cohort discussed writing around a table with this writer and editor, the subject of the Vita count arose. A student asked him why he thought his magazine has such a poor record on featuring women's voices in its pages. He said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, you know, I really wish we could publish more women because it's obviously a problem, but I have to be honest, we we just don't get equally strong work from women. I honestly don't care about the gender of the author. I just publish the best work. Giving him the benefit of the doubt about there really being a difference in the work submitted by men and women, I asked him if he thought that that meant that there was perhaps a bias then in what he and his staff considered, quote, the best work. With a predominantly male editorial staff, was it not possible that there was an existing bias towards a certain style of writing that reflected a more male perspective or voice? He refused to entertain the question at all, summarily dismissing it as a possibility. No, good writing is good writing, he said, or something to that effect, and moved on to the next question. For years I have thought of this interaction, and I suppose this talk (laughs) is my way of forcing a conversation that the editor shut down. As an essayist, I'm ex- interested in exploring questions that may not have simple answers, and this one certainly doesn't have a simple answer. I know I'm bushwhacking my way into a thorny mess of brush from which I may not be able to extract myself, <coughs> and anyone who has talked to me in the last few days knows I've been driving myself crazy trying to entangle these ideas. For every example on or position, there exists a counterargument. Still, a comment like, good writing is good writing, when discussing a failure to publish more female voices, begs the question, who decided what good writing is? How does a historically male-dominated canon of literature affect the way we think about serious literature, the the authorial voice, quote, good writing? I think these questions deserve contemplation, so I hope you'll indulge me in unpacking this idea further and that we'll be able to discuss it together in the Q&A at the end. Monique Wittig writes, there are not two genders. There is only one, the feminine, the masculine not being a gender. For the masculine is not the masculine, but the general. In literature, this means that the masculine voice is the default and the feminine voice seen as a subcategory, as the women's lit section in some bookstores and a lack of a corresponding men's lit section illustrates. I think of that visiting editor's comment about good writing in 2011 (coughs) every time I read reviews that criticize a female writer as too emotional or unfocused. Why is the masculine voice, the unsentimental, the linear, the singular perspective, the baseline for, quote, good writing? Per per Nobel Prize winner V.S. Naipaul, who has been described as the greatest living writer of English prose, no woman writer is his literary match. (laughs) Regarding Jane Austen... He said in an interview with the Royal Geographic Society that he, quote, couldn't possibly share her sentimental ambitions, her sentimental uh, sense of the world, unquote, and that women writers were, quote, quite different. He said, I read a piece of writing and within a paragraph or two I know whether it is by a woman or not. I think it is unequal to me. I think of these often repeated critiques like V.S. Naipaul's, which insists there's a a general difference in the way that men and women write. And I wonder, even if they are right, and I'm still not entirely convinced of my own thesis that they may be, why is a, quote, sentimental sense of the world or a style of writing which eschews adjectives and adverbs, as Stephen King scolds J.K. Rowling for failing to adopt, considered better writing? I recall having this thought when I sat in workshop in my MFA program and listened to peers tell women that economy and language was superior, purging texts of adjectives and adverbs, adverbs in their edited manuscripts and slashing more nuanced, deeper reflection that was evaluated as repetitive or tangential. I noted that female writer friends of mine with more masculine styles of writing and themes, war, combat, sports, espionage, excelled as exceptions in the same male-dominated publications that often failed in the Vita count, where other female writer friends could not break into these career-changing publications unless they, and I witnessed this more than once, deliberately wrote about masculine topics such as trucking and working in oil fields in an artificial, emotionally neutral voice, not their own, but adopted to appeal to these, these particular publications. Mind you, The women whose natural writing style skewed more masculine were excellent writers, as are many writers who have this culturally dominant style of writing. So this is something that should also be noted. We don't need to call the more masculine voice bad writing in order to be more inclusive, not at all. Masculine writing can be good writing. Feminine writing can be good writing. Rather, my question is: Why do we label feminine voices and themes inferior? Why do adverbs, for example, get characterized as characterized as childish, childish and vaguely feminine, wasting the reader's time, as Colin Dickey describes in his defense of the adverb in Slate article, in a Slate article. It's no shocker that V.S. Naipaul and Ernest Hemingway were among the most vehement opponents of the adverb, considering this characterization. When I tried to track down some hard data on this bias of adverbs being a hallmark of feminine writing, I found a scholarly article, The Feminine Style, Theory and Fact, by Mary P. Hyatt, who discovered that this bias is only partly true. Based on the analysis of 100 books by an equal number of men and women randomly chosen and analyzed by computer, Quote, the findings indicate that contemporary male and female authors do write differently. I can report with a fair degree of confidence that there is a feminine style and is not the same as a masculine style. I definitely do not postulate, however, that either style is a norm from which the other style varies, and although the way that men are thought to write tends to be considered the way to write, Probably because there are so many more male authors and critics than female authors and critics, in the interest of discovering whether women writers are, as frequently claimed, hyper-emotional, adverbs of emotion, such as amiably, abjectly, coldly, angrily, were studied. In fiction, the the women used twice as many adverbs of emotion than men, a finding that is probably the basis for calling women writers hyper-emotional. But if another type of adverb is examined, the adverb of pace, such as gradually, hastily, slowly, etc., a reverse trend is seen. The men's fiction contains twice as many of these adverbs as the women's. The men's fiction style thus seems to be hyperactive as compared to the women's. In all, women fiction writers used approximately the same number of adverbs of emotion and adverbs of pace, whereas the men fiction writers used four times as many adverbs of pace as adverbs of emotion, so it's a huge difference. Thus, in fiction, where the major differences occur, there is evidence that the feminine style balances pace of action and expression of emotionality. The women writers are not hyper-emotional except in terms of men in terms of the male writers. There seems to be far less basis for labeling the feminine styles as hyper-emotional than for labeling the masculine style as hypo-emotional. I love this reversal of the baseline here by this researcher. She determines that it's not the feminine writing which is unbalanced but masculine writing which is unbalanced. I feel at this point I should clarify that when I use the terms masculine or feminine as writing styles, I'm not necessarily speaking of male and female writers, although women are disproportionately affected by this bias due to a greater inclination across the board towards uh, feminine writing than men. I speak of masculine and feminine approaches in a traditional sense used as shorthand for styles of writing. I don't want to imply that I endorse a system which labels certain types of writing through a gender binary lens, but rather to just acknowledge that it exists. Certainly, there are a few male writers who write in what we call a, quote, feminine style, and there are female writers who write in a, quote, more masculine style. So the label doesn't necessarily correlate to the gender of the writer, especially in an era in which these binaries are increasingly being challenged. But because this whole concept actually does stem from a long history of gender inequality in literature, in which these masculine and feminine, feminine binaries and their associated qualities were strongly reinforced in our society, it became ingrained in a literary culture that continues today. This means that these stylistic biases may, in fact, still disproportionately affect female writers who still disproportionately have a feminine approach or focus in their writing to men. So I think it's still appropriate to refer to these gendered terms as a shorthand for the discussion of this issue. It should also be said that the unbalanced representation of women's and men's voices in literature can't be attributed to one specific thing and I don't believe that a bias against a feminine style of writing is the only problem or even the most egregious one. Men have been shown, for example, to be socially conditioned to submit more frequently to publications, to persist in submitting work that has been rejected elsewhere, whereas women's conditioning causes them to turn criticism in on themselves and stop submitting a rejected piece. This, of course, also contributes to this disparity in the vita count. In addition, we know that there is unconscious bias against female writers in general, as there have been multiple experiences which definitively show that editors and readers change their perception of work based on the belief that the writer is male or female. In her essay, Homme de Plume, Catherine Nichols describes sending the same manuscript out to agents under a male name that she had sent out under her female name. Quote, within 24 hours, George had five responses, three manuscript requests and two warm rejections praising this exciting project. For contrast, under my own name, the same letter and pages sent 50 times had netted me a total of two manuscript requests. I wanted to know more of ab- how the Georges of the world live, so I sent more. Total data, George sent out 50 queries and had his manuscript requested 17 times. He is eight-and-a-half times better than me at writing the same book. (laughs) Most of the agents only heard from one or the other of us, but I did overlap a little. One who sent me a form rejection as Catherine not only wanted to read George's book, but instead of rejecting it, asked if he could send it along to a more senior agent. George's work was, quote, clever, well-constructed, and exciting. No one mentioned his sentences being lyrical or whether his main characters were feisty. The agents themselves were both men and women, which is not surprising, because bias would hardly have a chance to damage people if it weren't per- pervasive. Bryn Donovan, which is also an alias, um, tried the same thing with her poetry and found that she has a much better acceptance rate under a male name. She writes, quote, I might stick to the guy name for all of my poems. Even a modest uptick in acceptances means a lot to me. And while I may write about more feminine subjects in the future, I suspect a male poet gets extra credit for sympathy and empathy while people take these qualities for granted in a woman. This latter phenomenon merks this whole situation up further. That is to say, yes, maybe there are differences in the way that men and women write generally and in the focus of their work but when a women, woman does it, it's lady lit, and when a man does it, he's refreshingly in touch with his emotions. I think of James Joyce's gorgeous ending to the dead, or in my opinion, gorgeous ending to the dead, a passage, a passage that, according to his own rules, should give Stephen King, the adverb ab- adversary, a conniption. Um, <laughs> it had begun to snow again, He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead." How is it that James Joyce doesn't earn the same wrath for his abundant use of adverbs often used to characterize feminine writing? I can't help but wonder if James Joyce would have earned the same reputation for this celebrated passage if his name was Jennifer Joyce. If he had been female, would he have been criticized for using such feminine and sentimental language? Would an editor have slashed the adverbs and adjectives if he had been a woman in this era? I was here. (laughs) I suspect if Joyce's ending for the dead was presented in a workshop today, people would begin slashing with their pens to produce a more pared-down masculine version. As indicated, there are certainly many factors at play. Let me make sure I didn't need to, yeah. as indicated, there are certainly many factors at play in the lopsided representation of women in the literary arena. I am aware of these other problematic factors. However, I keep returning to the comments of this, that visiting editor about women not su- submitting equally strong work. I think about the kinds of articles I read in the same magazine where he is an editor, and I do have to acknowledge that they are usually masculine in nature, focused on the what of war, politics, culture, global issues. The writing is bold, clean, unsentimental. It's good writing, serious writing. I have no beef with the writing. But it is decidedly masculine writing to my mind. And again, using masculine and feminine here in the traditional sense as a shortcut, a reflection of what is rather than what should be. So my question remains, Why have they decided that this voice is strong writing and a feminine voice, say, a voice that considers multiple angles or considers the emotional impact of war, politics, global issues, or focuses on other more reflexive subjects is less serious or weaker? This all became a personal issue when I was trying to sell my book, which is about my parents' experiences as children during World War II, one taken from his parents at 12 years old and put in a Japanese labor camp in the Dutch East Indies, and the other as a child who was put in a children's home after her parents were arrested as Nazi sympathizers in the occupied Netherlands, respectively. You guys are getting the very first look at my cover. <laughs> so, um, no. <laughs> I I just, I wanted to provide some images for this talk and and I almost didn't put that up and then I thought, well, I'm talking about my book I might as well put a picture of my book up. Um, I sold my book on proposal, oh no, my book is narrative in nature, focused on the emotional impact of the family, on the families and the inheritance of trauma. I sold it on proposal and when a book or a book proposal is out for consideration with editors. Uh, those who are potentially interested, this, this is how it works, that wh- those who are potentially, potentially interested in making an offer usually want to have a conversation with the author about the direction of the book. Two male editors that I spoke to during these conversations asked me if I would be willing to alter the book to focus more on the historical details of the war and less on the family narrative. I said that this was not what I was interested in, the who, what, when, and where of the war, but that I wanted to look at the why and the how of war. I wanted to look at the emotional impact of the war. Both of these editors passed on my book, one writing to my agent that, quote, in the end I think the book that I'm hoping for isn't quite the book that she's going to write. I think we are asking different questions slash looking at different models. Ultimately, perhaps by coincidence, only female editors bid on my book, and it ultimately found a home with an editor at Picador who who valued the questions I was pursuing in the project. But I sometimes wonder what would have happened if that space had not been made for my more, quote, feminine voice of perspective. Historically, (laughs) going back hundreds of years, women with feminine writerly voices have dealt with this by either adapting to the voice that document, that dominates the largely male canon, or have been relegated to the ranks of, quote, less serious women's lit, which is derided by critics. As Nathaniel Hawthorne ridiculed them in the ni- 1850s, America is now wholly given over to a m- damned mob of scribbling women, and I should have no chance of success while the public is occupied with their trash. Generally women write like emasculated men and are only to be distinguished from male offers, authors by greater feebleness and folly. I uh, <laughs> included a, a photo of Hester or a, a painting of Hester Prynne his uh, Hawthorne's famous heroine and decided that A might be his symbol <laughs> A might sim- symbolize author as well. <laughs> Of course, the contempt for feminine writing isn't as pronounced today as it was in the 19th century, and we've come a long way in getting respect as writers. But the residue of this bias is all over our literary canon and subsequent literary judgments. Note that I don't say literary tastes, because sales show that we actually like to read feminine literature. The Glass Castle, Eat, Pray, Love, Wild, and so forth. We just don't regard this literature quite as highly as we do books like Angela's Ashes, Into the Wild, A Walk in the Woods, um, which I, I was trying to think of other memoirs that could be correlated. Uh, Bridget, Bridget Jones' Diary or a heartbreaking work of staggering genius is the latter really a better better written, or is the masculine focus and voice in these books that we learn is it? is it the masculine voice focus and voice in these books that we learned was better or worse if the latter books had female authors would we put them in the same category i'm concerned about the feedback loop that we set up by reinforcing the canon i recall teaching an online english course for one university not this one and nowhere that i teach now <laughs> just to be clear, um, and getting a list of 50 novels from which I could choose two to teach that semester, 43 written by men and seven by women. Since men tend to write more often in a masculine voice and women more often often in a feminine voice, theoretically this would implicitly reinforce a masculine voice as worthy of scholarship and respect. I decided to supplement the university-prescribed reading list with some female-written novels just to give my students some alternative voices in their education about good, serious, literary writing. While personally, I personally am a nonfiction writer, uh, so I've only experienced this firsthand in that genre, this pandering to a masculine audience crosses all genres, apparently. I read an advice column by Kristen Hoggett for the Smart Set, an online magazine out of Drexel University, in which one letter reads I think of poetry as a boys' club. Do female poets have to learn to write in a masculine style to gain any praise for their poems? Hoggett replies, among other things, maybe some women feel that they have to alter their style to gain any credence for their poetry. From personal experience in writing workshops, my narrative poems, which are more straightforward, receive much more praise than my lyric ones, which are more imaginative and less easy to understand. Brian Spear responds to this exchange on his own blog asking, what exactly does masculine style mean? Hoggett sidesteps the question and I don't blame her. I'm tempted to do it myself because the question reeks of stereotypes and prescribed gender roles. Masculine traditionally is assumed to mean strong, muscular, active, less worried about emotion and perhaps about meaning. Dangerous, innovative, risk-taking, experimental. And as much as we'd like to pretend that these gendered stereotypes don't continue to infiltrate our collective conscious, my informal research shows that it does. <coughs> Ken Budd a mis- memoirist who was told by a colleague you write like a woman end quote <coughs> contemplates this feedback in a Chicago Tribune piece quote after my book was published I was happiest when readers said it was funny not that it was moving the goofball gene is dominant in many males most guys would pr- rather be Jimmy Fallon than J- Deepak Chopra that's why the ultimate barrier your soul female memoir, Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, led to a crude male pa- parody, Drink, Play, Fuck. And even though my memoir is emotionally honest, I envisioned it as a travel book, a comic fish-out-of-water tale centered on global volunteering that changed when my eventual agent suggested the real story was the fatherhood dilemma that this was deeper richer more powerful material so it took yes a woman to steer me toward the story's emotional core in her viral essay on pandering i don't know if anyone's read it (coughs) um which appeared in tin house magazine Claire Vey Watkins addresses her choices as a female writer looking to find success in an industry influenced by the patriarchal liter- literary canon asking quote who am i writing for who am i writing toward myself i've been writing this is still claire myself i've been writing to impress old white men countless decisions i've made about what to write and how to write it have been in acquiescence to the opinions of white male literati. Not only acquiescence, but a beseeching, approval-seeking, people-pleasing. But whom do I mean when I say white male literati? Sounds like a conspiracy theory, one of my favorite genres of American storytelling. I mean the people and voices real and imagined in the positions of power, or at least influence in writing and publishing. But mostly I mean the man in my head. James Baldwin wrote of the little white man deep inside all of us, but mine is tall. He's a white-haired chain smoker from New Mexico, the short story writer called Cheever's True Heir. <laughs> the stunning truth is that I am asking deep down as I write, what would Philip Roth think of this? What would Jonathan Franzen think of this? I wrote Battleborn Still Clara. I wrote Battleborn for white men toward them. If you hold the book to a certain light, you'll see it as an exercise in self-hazing, a product of working-class madness, the female strain. So natural, then, that Battleborn battle was well-received well by the white male-lit lit establishment. It was written for them. The whole book's a pander. Look, I said with my stories, I can write old men. I can write sex. I can write abortion. I can write hard, unflinching, sent- unsentimental. I can write an old man getting a boner. Here are the lampposts, here's the single screen movie theater. It's all an architecture of pandering, it's for them. She can write like a man, they said, by which they meant she can write. I tell you this, I have not written anything of consequence since my daughter was born. I spend my days with a baby and that, patriarchy says, is not the stuff of art. Once again, I'm a girl and not a writer. About a year ago, I had a baby, this is still Claire, <laughs> I wanted to share this because it's important. About a year ago, I had a baby, and while my life was suddenly more intense, more frightening, more beautiful, more difficult, and more profound than it had ever been, I found myself with nothing to write about. Nothing's happening to me, I bemoaned to Annie. I need to go shoot an elephant. <laughs> I thought I had enough material for a novel, but when it came out it was a short story and one that felt unserious. I tried a story in the form of a postpartum depression questionnaire and it felt quaint, domestic, for women. Motherhood has softened me. I don't want to write like a man anymore. I don't want to be praised for being, quote, unflinching. I want to flinch. I want to be wide open. So. What can we do to address this issue and make sure that we are empowering a multitude of voices rather than the dominant cultural voice? How can we help in the goal of taking feminine writing as seriously as masculine writing? I think we can start by pushing back against our own ingrained biases as readers and in workshops, interrogating some of what we've taken as true about good writing while under the influence of a lopsided literary canon. We can elevate and take seriously literar- literary voices we love reading that challenge the hierarchy that we've constructed. And we can stop pandering, as Claire V. Watkins put it. I suppose my hope is the same that as that of Watkins in the end. Quote, let us embrace a do-it-yourself canon, wherein we make our own canon filled with what we love to read and what speaks to us and challenges us and opens us up, wherein we can determine our artistic lineages for ourselves with curiosity and vigor rather than trying to shoehorn ourselves into a ready-made canon. Let us, each of us, write things that are uncategorizable rather than something that panders to and condones and codifies those categories. Let us burn this motherfucking system to the ground and build something better. Thanks.